0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, before we uh, delve into today's passage, let's let's join in prayer together. Uh, Father, this last song that we sang is your heart's desire for us. That in the midst of any life situation, whether it be pleasant or whether it be hard, that we learn what it means to surrender to you, so that we can find perfect security perfect peace perfect comfort and strength in you and your word tells us that we will not experience that perfectly this side of heaven but someday when our time comes that when we are in your presence perfectly there will be no more sin and we will experience you as you've always been meant to be experienced by us and we thank you that you are holy and that you are loving And we thank you, Lord, that you make us aware time and time again how precious life is and how much you love the people that you have created. People that you have created in your image so that they could have perfect relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that as sinners, you made it possible for us to have life in you. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. we thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in each and every person who has surrendered their life to Christ. And we thank you that because of that, the true sting of death is gone. Even though we mourn for people we love, we know right now that Jesse's with you. So Lord, we surrender to you. And we ask, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that you are both the initiator and the perfecter of our faith. We thank you that when we fall, that you pick us up. We thank you that you have a hold on us. It's not us trying to hold on to you. We thank you that you are so much bigger and good, much more merciful, much more loving than we could ever imagine, and that you invite us into relationship with you. And with each other for eternity. What a blessing we have in knowing you. So this morning we surrender to you. And we ask that you have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into our passage today, I just want to share with you one or two stories that I think relate. Uh, Well, we were in Garden Hill, um, met a guy named Troy. Really cute kid. Big heart, love to play, um, just a guy that you like spending some time with. And uh, Thursday night, after everything was over, we had cleaned up, had our supper and our sharing time, I went outside the doors and there was a couple of kids out there who asked if they could play. It's more or less what they want. Hey guys, would you come out and play with us? And uh, so we took out some balls, some frisbees. And we went to the field. There were just a handful of kids that were waiting at the door, but it wasn't long, and the field was full of children who just wanted to hang out, just wanted to be loved. And we knew that was a good part of why God had brought us there, is to tangibly show children love, and in the interactions to, to demonstrate the love of Christ and to speak of Him. And uh, while we were playing, Troy comes up on, a, on his bike, and he's got this big shoebox, and uh, he says, uh, I have something that I want to give you, uh, but I can't give it to you here. He said I have to give it to you inside, and it was for all of us. And I said, okay, well, you know, we're just starting to play right now. If you don't mind, we'll come later on. And so he went to the school. He spent some time with the rest of the staff inside. And when we got there, uh, he said, Yeah, I have a gift I want to give you, something I made. And he opened it up, and uh, there were these little little cupcakes. And he had spent his afternoon cooking, baking those so that he could give them to us. Um, I don't know the full extent of what that means as far as the sacrifice it was for his family to do that. I told one of our people, Andrew, who had already gone home. He's the nurse in Garden Hill. He had to fly home on Wednesday. When I told him last week about it, he said, Doug, that is such a huge honor. When people bake in Garden Hill for you, that's a real sign of love. And so that I was touched by that. You don't need money to show love to people. Today, as we're talking about riches and wealth, uh, nothing uh, should stop us from demonstrating love to other people. And uh, I was very touched by by that kind act. Um, this is a picture of where our school, the school is that we served in that uh, red circle around there. That's the actual elementary school. That's the field that we were playing on that I was telling you about. And on Friday, we ended up walking around the community at night, and there's a, like a, just a mob of kids following us around, and towards the end of the evening, we were back at the school, and there was still a young girl, her name was Kyla, she was with us, she had come back to get her Bible. I can't remember if she forgot it or just hadn't received one, but she had come back to the school, and uh, she was about a 25-minute walk away from the school, so Jill and I, Jill Pollard and I decided that we'd walk with her and kind of walk out that way. And um, just make sure that she got home safe because it was getting dark outside. And uh, as we are walking, one of the streets we were going down, all of a sudden this, this gentleman starts walking towards us. And all I hear right off the top is, uh, are you guys Christians? <laughs> and I said, yes, we are. He goes, well, I'd like you to pray for me. I said, well, we'd love to do that for you. I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Alexander. And I said, well, and what is it that you're looking for prayer for? He goes, I'm at the end of my rope. And I've been there for a while. And I just need prayer. I just need hope. And so Jill and I took some time to pray for him right then. And uh, then he started walking away. And then he stopped. And he said, uh, "He said I've, I've been tempted so many times just to finish it. So three times in particular where I've just felt so tempted. And then I've just resisted it and I've moved past it. But that's sort of where I'm at. And so I told him, I said, you know, it's a wonderful thing that you've resisted temptation, but I can tell you what Scripture says. And Scripture says that what we need to do is, re- is surrender to Christ and then resist the devil and he'll flee from us. That's the only way you can actually do that in safety is that you've submitted to Christ and that is, that's a relationship that you enter into. And then the Bible says when you're in that proper relationship with Christ, then you can actually tell the devil to flee. If, if you don't have Christ in you, that's not, that's not a wise thing to do. Uh, it's not a magical incantation that we have, it's a relationship with Jesus. And so I shared that with him, he said, thank you. And he just walked, and we kind of saw the the house that he walked to. And uh, you know what? As he was leaving, part of me just thought, wow, I could give my life to just walking around the neighborhoods doing that little thought inside my head is, why aren't you? Why aren't you walking around your neighborhood? Why aren't you living a life so well that people around you know that you're a Christian, that you want to pray for them, Right? It was a loving encouragement to me to be thinking more and more about being the incarnation of Christ where I live. And also a little bit of a rebuke because, you know, there was a part of me that thought somewhere in, there, in this little interaction there's going to be an ask for money. Somewhere he's going to come to me and now ask where's the dollar behind it. And he left. I thought he didn't ask me for anything. He just asked me to connect him with our Savior, to pray for him, to care for him. And uh, today, again, as we talk about uh, wealth, as we talk about God's warning for those who have wealth through oppressive means, we need to remember that what we have to offer this world is so much more than money. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit in us when, we give, uh, when people have given their life to Christ. But then we still have the responsibility to use everything God has given us for his glory. And that's the focus of what we're talking about today. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to James 5, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 6. As you turn there, I just want to highlight two things. Uh, First of all, in Scripture, there's a lot of things said about wealth. Most of the time, it's not positive as far as how wealth ends up being used, but it's not a judgment about wealth itself. There's nothing morally right or wrong about wealth. It's about how we view it and how we acknowledge or where we acknowledge it comes from. And so one of the verses in the Bible is that you cannot worship both God and money. It's pretty clear, guys, that our focus is going to be on one thing or the other. And this passage that James is writing, this whole book that James is writing, is written to Christians. So even in a relationship that is maybe given to Christ already, there is the danger that the focus We get so self-deceived that all of a sudden we realize, yes, I've accepted Christ. But when I look at my life, where is my focus? What am I really living for if I do a self-examination? And so one of the things as we read this passage is the Bible says you can only worship God or money. And on this side of heaven, you need to choose that. And the other thing is you can't uh, see in this picture too well, it's faded, but it's got a a dollar sign in the middle of her eyeball. It's a picture of an eye with a dollar sign. It's really, what's the focus of living? Why, Why do we live and what is it that we want to see done in our life? And when I pray to God, is it primarily about what I want? Is it primarily about what I need and the style of life I want? Is it me asking God to always bless me or is it me... Saying, "God, use me to glorify Yourself." What's the focus of life? So, with those two things, let's uh, please stand with me, and we will read. I'll read these verses. <clears throat> so, James five verses one to six. Now, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotten, and moss has eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. May God add his blessing for the reading of his word. Please be seated. It's pretty easy to see that this is not a light passage. It's not one that we're meant to take lightly. James is a book about testing. And God tests us not so that he can find out about us, but that we can find out about ourselves. So that we truly know what we're trusting in, in this world. And this first verse, when we look at James 5, verse 1, the first thing he says is, now listen. He's saying, wake up, people. It's important for you to hear this. Don't assume that this isn't about you. Remember that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is meant to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, to train us in righteousness. So when we read these last six verses, if you kind of tune out and say, ah, it doesn't relate to me. It does relate to you. Everything in Scripture relates to you. There's something for us to learn from this today. So what is it that God wants you to learn, wants me to learn, as we read through these six verses together? So again, James blessed us with a reality check. What God wants to allow you to do is to see your life. He wants you to see you as you really are. And most of us don't have the courage to do that. And God says, that's okay, because, Doug, I'll give you the strength. In the right time, I will use your, my Holy Spirit to help you see who you are and who you could be in me and where you are right now. And I want you to see things clearly, Doug, so that you can surrender these things to me. And I want you to see these things clearly, Doug, so that you can rejoice in me. We have many, many blessings in this life. When we went through the book of Ephesians, all things God has blessed us with. So it's a test for us to just see who we are and where Christ is in our life. So the focus here is you rich people. Uh, The context that James is writing in, if you read commentaries, you'd read different things. But he is speaking to the church. The rich people here are people who have accumulated their wealth through unjust means. So it would be better to say the rich oppressors, the unjust rich. But when James is writing this book, you have to remember there's no middle class at the time Scripture was written. You've got the rich and the very rich, and you've got the poor and the dirt poor. There's no middle class like what we have in America. There is also a different understanding of wealth. There is a different understanding that wealth was very limited There's only so much wealth to go around in this world, so it has to be shared. So that means if I have more wealth, you have less wealth. Does that make sense? If I'm taking away to accumulate for myself, that means that you have less to have. I don't think we think that way in North America, but I think that actually might be a better way of looking at things, because we can see the end results of Uh, often our North American lifestyle, that it impacts people from other countries that we don't see, we don't really know about, and because of that we can put it out of our mind, because it doesn't directly come from my life, it indirectly comes from my life. And so we need to keep those things in mind. Uh, Here's a little grid. If you were to look at this, where would you put yourself? You see a grid here that says uh, uh, rich and poor going vertically, wicked and righteous going uh, horizontally. Where do you see yourself as a in grid one, grid two, grid three, grid four? <clears throat> I'd ask you to not only answer this question for yourself, but think, how would your neighbor answer this question for you on the poor level? Are you rich or are you poor? How would a homeless person in Winnipeg answer that question for you? Are you rich or are you poor? How would a person in a third world country answer that question on your behalf are you rich or are you poor and most importantly how would god answer that question for you are you rich or are you poor i also want you to look at this and ask the same questions about righteous how do you feel about that for yourself how would your neighbor answer are you righteous or wicked what about a homeless person What about a person from a third world country? What about God? And God will tell you the only way that you're righteous is if your life is grounded in Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in anything else, Scripture will tell you you're deceived and going down a wrong path. If you've accepted Christ when you were a kid, but you're still living life to try to make it right for God or do the things for God, and you're not just trusting in the strength of the Holy Spirit, you're still going in the wrong direction. So that's the question. That's part of the test. You have to ask yourself, where are you in that grid? So there are different types of wealth. And I just put the heading here is that the warning that uh, James gives to his listeners is your your wealth isn't going to save you. And in the ancient world, there was really three primary focuses of wealth or three types of wealth. And the first one had to do more with uh, food had to do with crops, livestock, the things that you'd need to live for sustenance. So when James is talking about wealth, that's how people would be interpreting it. It's the stuff that you would store up, the stuff that you need to eat to survive. Uh, The other one would be clothes. Uh, Rich people would have purple clothes, fancier clothes. Most people, in the time that James wrote, would have one pair of clothes, and that's what they'd wear. Look at your life right now. Are you rich or are you poor? Most people had one pair of clothes. And then gold and silver, these precious metals that are still precious today. Dollars rise and fall. We see that in our own dollar, right? All the time. But gold and silver, they always have some value throughout history. There's, there's these precious metals. And uh, what James says, really? They're already corroded. Maybe these things are mixed metals. I don't know. But he's saying, in the sight of God, none of these things have any lasting, lasting value. The, the food has been rotten. The clothes that you have are moth-eaten and the gold and silver is corroded. So they're really not worth much. You might think they are, you might live like they are, but they're not worth much. They're not much worth today and they won't be be worth much at the end. And uh, what you need to be aware of is that these very things that you think might save you are the things that are going to testify against you when it comes to before giving your uh, being judged before God with your life. We need to be aware of that. And the big thing here that he says is, guys, you've hoarded. The stuff that you have, you haven't been using it to glorify God. You've been storing it away. You've been hoarding. And this is a real danger. Um, a story from the Gospels that would help us understand this would be the parable of the rich fool. This is found in Luke 12. And it's really interesting because in this parable, there's no mention of poor people. There's just the mention of the rich man who says, Look at everything I have. I've got it made. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I could quit. I could be retired today. And I have enough to get me till I'm dead. I have everything I need. And he builds this big silo and he puts all his crops, all his grains in there. And then the parable goes... The the parable goes that the Lord comes to him and in the evening says, you fool, don't you know that you can't even add an hour to your your life and everything that you think is precious is going to be gone. Paraphrase that a lot, actually. But that was more or less the point of it, is that you fool, you can't control your own life and these things that you've hoarded up for yourself are all going to fade away. And this was a point that God made. He didn't say because you hoarded your wealth and weren't generous to the poor. He said because you hoarded your wealth and you were not rich towards God. So let's take that first. Not even think about how you use your wealth to help poor people. Your wealth, the wealth that God has given you as to be a steward over, are you rich towards God with it? That's a key question. So that was the foolishness of not being rich towards God. Is it okay to get the slides on the back screen if it's possible? Matthew six twenty to 21 says this, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's probably a fairly familiar passage to many of you who have taken any stewardship courses or financial courses. Uh, usually, when I've heard it used, and it's been used in a good way, saying that, you know, whatever God has given you a steward of, the things that you really treasure, the things that you see God at work in, you should put your money there, right? You should put your heart towards those things. And it's, it's fine to use the verse to, to encourage us that way. But really, I think this verse is saying, your treasure should have nothing to do with your wealth. Your treasure should have nothing to do with your money. For lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where rust and moth do not destroy. So what are treasures in heaven? Treasures in heaven are those, first of all, I think, those anything done in the power and the strength of God for His sake and for the blessing of others. It's relationships that we develop here on earth that will last into eternity. It is every good thing, every single thing that we do in the strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit, again, for the sake of God. Those are the treasures. Because where your treasure will be, that's where your heart will be. Do you treasure God? Do you treasure the people made in His image? Do you treasure the truth that only those who have given their life to Christ are going to enter into eternity forever with you? That's what treasure is. And so uh, I think those are good words for us to keep in mind. So a question here is, in what ways are you storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven? There's a test for today, test for this week. In the last seven days, what ways have you been storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven? These are questions that are only helpful if you get specific. I, I hope, I, I, this is the, the challenge that God gives us. Day in, day out is, Doug, I want to be a part of your every moment life, not just your big theology. So, good evaluation question. Then, what could it look like in the next seven days? And another question, what do you currently hoard that you need to give away? North Americans are really good at hoarding. Look at all the storage units we have. Look how big our houses are and we still don't have room to keep the stuff that we have. So often you see garages that cars aren't parked in because they're full of stuff. We hoard people. And God isn't pleased with that. Now you need to judge for yourself what needs to be given away or not. But this is what Scripture is saying to these rich people who got their riches unjustly. They said, you hoard. So I'm going to assume that most of us in this room probably haven't received our riches, our wealth unjustly, but there's still this message about hoarding. Why are you holding on to it? Give it to people who could use it right now. Bless others with it. So then we move on to the next couple of verses that really focus on the fact that the wealth of the unjust is what's going to convict them instead of save them. What they think is going to be their salvation is actually their doom. And again, James says, look. And then he says, the wages you failed to pay the workmen. So these men have people underneath them that they're responsible for, that they're supposed to pay wages to, and they're not doing it. The equivalent that we could think of today would probably be when you think of day laborers, right? You think of people, they've lost all their jobs and they're just looking for work. When I was on the border, doing missions on the border of the U.S. and Mexico, I saw this day in, day out. I see a bunch of Mexican men just waiting in line for a job, just wanting a truck to drive by and someone say, I need work for a day, I'll take you. Jump in the back of the truck and go so they can get enough money to feed their family for the night. So these unjust men, what they're doing is they're getting people who are desperate like that to work for them. They have the money to pay them, and they don't pay them because they're greedy. And they say, it's better for me to hold on to that. I don't need to pay you. What are you going to do about it? Why don't you work for me another day? Maybe I'll pay you then. So now God is saying, you unjust rich, the wages, that's going to be held against you. And you failed to pay them when you could have. And then the cries of the harvester, the cries of these individuals who have next to nothing. And at this point here, we're not saying about are these people saved or not saved? Do they have a relationship with Christ or not? That isn't in this equation right now. It's just a matter of these are people in desperation who need help. And you're not even not only help, not helping them, you're making it worse for them. You made them work for you for a full day. You didn't pay them. So now they're hungrier than ever before because they gave all their strength to working for you. And you don't pay. You are withholding. And so the cries of the harvesters are going to be against you. What we need to know here is that in this life, we sometimes wonder what's God doing when we see things like that happening? And what we need to be assured of is God is not mocked, God does not show favorites. And God doesn't always work in the timing we want, but he's patient. The Bible says he's patient because he wants all people to come to know him. Because he knows when judgment day comes, there's no more options. You've either made your choice or not for Christ. And and what David tells us when he cries and he sees all this injustice and he doesn't know how to make sense of it, he says in the midst of his despair, God helped him to see that someday when people are standing before God, that is when the people who have used all the blessings in this world, all the riches in this world that they've got from unjust or just means, whatever it is, but they've used it not for the sake of God, that they will be held account. And then David said, And then I saw how you really see the world, Lord, and that the poor that you will bless in eternity, right? And, and the rich will be held account. And again, making very clear that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. Your financial status does not qualify you for whether or not you're in a relationship with God. Only Christ does that. But there seems to be a very close connection to the draw to wealth or the people who are living in poverty and how open they are to accepting the love and help of Jesus Christ. The next verse, uh, James 5, verse 5 says this, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Okay, guys, can you connect to these words? luxury and self-indulgence can you see that being an issue for most of us in some way or another living in this world right these are these are words again that are specifically said to the unjust rich but i have to take this to my heart and say lord to what level am i living in this way that doesn't glorify you and that harms others I uh, don't know if this picture will help you. I don't know how I came across these pictures, but somehow it was of encouragement to me. Uh, these are pictures of chickens and how big chickens have been at different ages that were considered healthy. So uh, this is the average weight of chicken in after 56 days. And in 1957, you got a chicken that's 905 grams. That's a healthy chicken right there. And you'd be very glad to have it. Let's add a couple of years to this, to 1978. Chicken's getting a little bit fatter, pretty much twice the size. Was 1.8 grams, or 1,808 grams. Pretty big. So let's go to 2,005, and you've got a chicken that's 4,202 grams. So I don't know where the study came from, whatever, but this just tells me, wow, standards of what's healthy has changed. And, and I wonder how much force feeding and other things are in this chicken to make it that big. I don't know the question for that. But what I do know is that our impression, my impression of what's needed for health or for life or what doesn't fall under the category of luxury or self-indulgence gets bigger the more I have. It's very hard for that not to change. And, and I might think, hey, well, this is, everybody's like this. That's just a normal chicken. And really God's saying, you know what, this is more what a healthy one looks like. A chicken that has everything that it needs day to day. And uh, you're living like this, Doug. So guys, again, this is just a loving, loving rebuke from Scripture to say, look at your life so that you can be sure you're going in the right direction with Christ. And you're putting your trust in the right person and not your trust in things or yourself. I hope you hear that throughout this message. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You, this is again to these people. You have you've been putting everything into yourself, and now that is actually going to be your conviction. And then there's a reversal of fortunes for them. Uh, James five verse six ends up saying, "You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you." Um, I think of this probably from a very, like a political standpoint, a legal standpoint. Even in today's age, we can see people who have been wronged, but, well, I can't go to court because I can't afford that. There's a lot of injustice done in this world because of a legal system where the poor aren't represented and the wealthy have way more, right? So there's different ways of, of looking at this, but that would be sort of the context that this is talking about, is that there was, no, there was no leg for the poor people to stand on as they were trying to present an argument against the against the rich. But actually, even more so here, it says, they're not even opposing you. These poor people are just kind of taking it. And I don't know if that's because of weakness and there's trample, or whether it was in the strength of the Holy Spirit, it was a meekness that said... I will turn the other cheek, not in weakness, but in strength, because that was, that's what God asked me to do. So um, I just want to share a verse with you uh, from Proverbs, uh, and it says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Whenever we do something that pushes someone down, that's an insult to God. It doesn't matter who that person is. When we push them down, we insult them. Even if it's our enemy. The Bible says if you do that to your enemy, if you gloat over the failings of your enemy, God's hand of punishment will actually come off of that person because he doesn't like it when we gloat at the downfall of others. And then he says, this is Proverbs 14 verse 31, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. When we're generous to those in need, we honor God. So as we get to the end of our message for today, I just want to encourage you with this. I want to encourage you with the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and, and most of you who have grown up in Sunday school will be familiar with the story. Uh, this is from Luke 19, 1-10. Little man, chief tax collector, got his wealth through not being a friend to the people around him, taking the money from the Jews, giving it to the Romans, doing a lot of unjust things to get a lot of wealth. He would be what people would say a despised man, a sinner. And uh, in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a short man. So he said, you know what? Jesus is coming by. I want to see him. I'm going to get into a tree so at least I can see him from there. And Jesus, as he's walking by, he notices Zacchaeus right away. And he says, Zacchaeus, get out of your tree. I'm coming to your house for dinner. And all the people say, why would Jesus go to a sinner's house? And Zacchaeus was just overjoyed that Jesus was there. And in the encounter, we know that he understood who Jesus was because he said, more or less, Jesus, you know what? I've done things that are wrong. I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor and anybody that I've treated unjustly, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. And Jesus looked at him and said, today's salvation has come to your home. And the salvation didn't come to his home because he gave away his money and he did it. it came because he acknowledged that when you have a relationship with Christ, your actions change. When you have a relationship with Christ, you think like Christ does bit by bit, more by more with the help of the Holy Spirit and you start seeing need the way God sees need. And you, you say, I want to give what God has given me to bless others. So I want to encourage you with this. There is never a place where someone is out of the reach of God. Until the day they die, that choice has been made. But till then, we don't know where people are at. And so we just pray, Lord, have your way. And we thank you that you're patient. So the question I have for you with this is, how has encountering Christ changed your view of what is to be treasured? Zacchaeus, before he met Christ, treasured all the wealth he could have. When he met Christ, he said, that's not what's to be treasured. I treasure you, Christ, and I'm going to treasure you by helping others. And the next question, what plans for the future can you make to reflect God's concern for the poor? Just some questions to leave us with today. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they come up, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me, and then we'll we'll close in song today. Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, your word is not always easy to hear, but it's always good to hear. And it's good, Lord, because you help us to see life as you do and you help us to know that true life is only found in you and every time we get our eyes set on any other hope anytime we put our security in any other thing or person than you we're on the road to destruction and you want us to be on the road to life you give us your word and lovingly test us lovingly rebuke us so that we can be led towards you who is the source of all good things And so today, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we have the wonderful opportunity to be grounded in you and to have a relationship with you. And we thank you for the things you bless us with, but we ask, Lord, that you never let us make the things you've blessed us with be the focus of our life or the main reason that we'd want to follow you. So we humbly surrender to you, and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.